Hey there, welcome to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week, we're going to be talking to the comedian Gary Goleman. You might know him from his many late-night appearances, or maybe from his HBO special, The Great Depression. Gary can now add author to his resume. He's got a new memoir out. It's called Misfit, Growing Up, Awkward in the 80s. And it talks about his childhood in Massachusetts, but it also talks about his adult life, where Gary has dealt with very severe depression. It actually landed him in a psychiatric ward where somebody recognized him as a celebrity. Uh, The book also talks about how moving home and living in his childhood bedroom actually turned out to be life-changing for him. We're also going to talk to award-winning poet Anis Mojgani about life as a poet laureate, and we're going to hear a poem from his book, The Tigers They Let Me. And we'll get some music from Olive Klug. That's all happening this week on Livewire, and it gets started in just a moment. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It is going absolutely splendid this week because it is once again time for station location identification examination. Are you ready? Yeah, (laughs) I'm ready. (laughs) This is where I quiz a very confident Elena Passarello about a place in the country where Livewire is on the radio. She's got to guess where I am talking about. Okay. Uh, This is actually the first American settlement west of the Rocky Mountains. Hmm, I have an idea, but I'd like a confirming clue, please. If I give you the second clue, it's going to be a slam dunk. Okay, so it's Astoria, Oregon. (laughs) (laughs) You always come in so hesitant, and then you just absolutely 360 slam dunk it. That's right. It's the, uh, the location of many a film, including Free Willy. Free Willy 2. Yeah. Kindergarten Cop. Woo-hoo. Into the Wild. And of course, famously, The Goonies. Goonies. That's right. <laughs> Astoria, Oregon, where we're on KOAC radio. So shout out to everybody out there in Astoria. You ready to get to the show? Yeah, let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's. This week, comedian Gary Goldman. Yeah, I grew up without a father, but <laughs> I, got to, I, I got to watch Taxi. <laughs> and poet Anis Mojgani. The poem exists whether it has language or not delivered to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, the trees exist whether we climb them. The trees exist whether we fell them. 
whether we dismiss them. With music from Olive Klug and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. And thanks to everyone for tuning in from all over the country, including Astoria, Oregon. We have a great show in store for you this week. Of course, uh, we have a question we've asked the Livewire audience this week, as we often do. We asked, tell us about a meaningful thing someone did to cheer you up when you were having a hard time. We're talking to Gary Goldman about uh, his book and also his battle with depression, so this is relevant to that. We're going to hear those responses coming up in a minute. First, though, it's time, of course, for the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder right here at the top of the program that there is good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news you've heard all week? Well, talking about somebody doing something that makes me feel good, Hmm. uh, this totally makes me feel good and hopeful about the future. It involves some high schoolers in South Baltimore, which is a part of town on the Curtis Bay. Okay. It's a peninsula that has a lot of industrial activity as well as a few working class residential neighborhoods and schools. There's a junkyard there. There's an old landfill. There's a bunch of chemical plants And there's this kind of railroad, like, I guess, inlet to the port where CSX has often train car after train car after train car of uncovered coal. So right by the high school, there's just like mountains of coal there all the time. And of course, uh, that leads to some issues with pollutants. Yeah. Luckily, there is a club that exists and it's ha- it has existed for over a decade to protect the South Baltimore community. It's called Free Your Voice. They started in 2011 when a bunch of high schoolers successfully shut down a plan to build an incinerator really close to the high school. They gave this really impassioned speech at a school board meeting with music and argument and poetry. The school board gave them a standing ovation. And after a couple of years, that plan bit the dust. Speaking of dust, the thing that they're doing now is to try to prove that there is coal dust affecting the communities. Coal dust, of course, is like a pollutant that causes a lot of respiratory issues. So these high schoolers, which include Tasha Thompson, who is the little sis of somebody from the first generation, the incinerator bunch of the three-year voice <laughs> posse, they are uh, going door to door. They are making detection devices out of sticky paper. I didn't know you could do that. They did, I mean, they, I think they devised the, wow. this by themselves. They're hanging banners over highways. They're bringing bags of coal to uh, and leaving them at the houses of Baltimore City Council members. They're working with scientists at Towson University, at Johns Hopkins, and with a particulate scientist in California in order to get all the hard data and all the social information they need to prove to the state, federal, and local governments that this has to change. Uh, They either need to keep the coal wet or they need to cover it. There are some options that are in place. And of course, there's a ton of red tape and proliferism Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with different kinds of government agencies, but they are making a difference. And it just makes me feel so good. All of those kids should graduate with straight A's. I don't even care what their actual grades are. That is such an amazing life lesson and and such a way to integrate learning about the world with advocating for yourself. That's an incredible story. And how to be a part of a community in every way, shape, and form. It's just so impressive. 
Good for them. Speaking of high schoolers doing something very cool, do you know the sort of new trend with a number of high school bands is to actually convert them to mariachi? And it's really popular, particularly in California. There's a school called Kip Soul Academy in Los Angeles. And the band director, Arlette Morales, was looking around one day a few years ago, and she was like, there's a lot of like mariachi involving adults, but there's not much mariachi for kids. Why don't I actually start mariachi at this school? And she only got like a few students to show up. Uh-huh. But those few students had so much fun, and they told their friends, and they told their friends. And now there is a hundred-person waiting list. <gasps> to get into mariachi at Kip Soul Academy. It's also like causing a lot of these students to make more connections with their families. The singer, uh, the seventh grader Genesis Trinidad is the singer for this year's mariachi at Kip Soul Academy. She said that she doesn't actually speak Spanish, but her grandfather plays Norteño, which mm. is a, a genre of a Mexican music. And she and her granddad have been bonding over mariachi because ah. this is now this kind of thing that they can share. Genesis also says that when she got into mariachi, her love for music expanded. She says, like 10 times more. There's a number of schools around the country that are offering mariachi, and it's just like hugely fun and popular. I'm looking at all these photos of the kids all decked out with their instruments. Do they march? Like, do they make shapes and things? They don't take the marching band aspect that far. I think it's just a way of expressing themselves musically. But I'm reminded of when I lived in Los Angeles and I lived in a neighborhood where a lot of people would have quinceaneras and other get-togethers and they would hire mariachi bands. And I would just like stand next to my fence and listen to like free mariachi music. <laughs> it's like I would see a bouncy house going up in my neighborhood and I'd be like, it's going to be a good Saturday. It's on. <laughs> I'm going to get some sweet free mariachi music. So uh, the kids getting into mariachi. That's the best news that I heard this week. All right, let's invite our first guest on over to the program this week. He is absolutely one of my favorite comics working today. Uh, He's been on all of the late night shows many times. He also has this HBO special called The Great Depression, which really, to me, was kind of a revelation in terms of melding humor with a really kind of serious and impactful discussion about mental health. He's got a book out now. It's called Misfit, Growing Up Awkward in the 80s. Now, In his career, Elena, he has sold out Carnegie Hall, but for some reason, he also agreed to be on Livewire. (laughs) This is Gary Gullman, live from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Thank you. Uh, Gary, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's an an honor. It's an honor. It's a great show. I've, I've followed your career really closely. I've been a fan of yours for a long, long time. I wish I knew. And, and <laughs> I, I still found out so much more about you uh, in this book that I didn't know, including the fact that your parents were divorced, but your mom was still your dad's best friend. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. They and were you were kind close. of good with them being divorced? Yeah, because my, my father, if I stayed at my father's, I would have to go to bed at 8 p.m. And my mom, the bedtime was 9.30, which a- allowed me to watch the year three's companies, your Laverne and Shirley's, and, uh-huh. and, and things like that. So it was, it was, yeah, I grew up without a father, but <laughs> I, got to, I, I got to watch Taxi. <laughs> um, the other thing about this book that struck me was the structure of it. Okay. Because it's it's about your childhood, and you kind of go grade by grade, but then you also 
uh, every other chapter is about a time in your life in 2017 yes. where you went through a depressive episode that was incredibly debilitating oh, yeah. to the point that you moved home <laughs> to live with your mother in Peabody, Massachusetts. Yes. Why in that year did that seem to you like the only thing to do? Oh, this is interesting. And I'm so glad you read the book. A lot of people, I do interviews and they clearly didn't read the book. They would say something like, no, you used chapters. <laughs> that was, what, what made you use that as a device to, yeah. So I had been in the hospital in the psych ward in, at uh, Cornell Weill and I did not feel that I could go back to doing my comedy. I wasn't ready to work because I had had electroconvulsive therapy and it takes some time to re recover from that. And also, And this I, was for anxiety and depression. Yes, anxiety, very severe to the point where I was catatonic for, for, I mean, basically two and a half years I spent on the couch. I was able to, to pull myself together some days for an hour stand up to pay rent and things like that. But then I realized I, I, I don't think I'm gonna be able to make rent and I, my, my lease was up. I said, I'm gonna go home to my mom. And most people would say that their low point was, was receiving electroconvulsive therapy in the, in the <laughs> hospital. For me, much further down is, is moving back into the twin bed you grow up in at, at 46 years old. And, and also, there was this thing where a lot of people that I grew up with still lived in the, in the neighborhood, and I would see them, and they'd ask me what I'd been up to, and it's like, well, I, I, can, uh, I can use laces again, so that's, that's very helpful, and my, you'll yeah. notice my, my socks don't have any treads on the bottom, so things are, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm living with my mom. It's, it was just, it, it, was, it was very humbling, which yeah. is a good thing in some cases, but I, I had plenty of humility going in, and it just, it was really, <laughs> Really, it was really hard, but it it alleviated this great stress, which was making rent uh -huh. and and trying to earn money out there. And I, I I really thought I may not be able to do stand up again, so I wanted to I wanted to go back to school to study to be a teacher. But I definitely needed to convalesce. And mm -hmm. in about three or four months in, I found myself being drawn to going up to the comedy clubs just to hang out with people. And then the man was very generous; he put me on at the end of the show, and I had to address why I looked so frail and was shaking and, and hadn't, hadn't shaved. And, and so I started talking about, the first joke I did, I said, um, ever get recognized in the psych ward? <laughs> and <laughs> and that, that, that really happened. Somebody knew me from DV and said, um, am I crazy or are you Gary Goldman? <laughs> and, and I said, oh yeah, we're crazy, but. <laughs> This is one of those two things can I'm just, be true. Yeah, I'm just getting that from context. We're wearing pajamas and it's <laughs> 6.30 p.m. So, <laughs> but I am Gary Goldman. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break and get it together. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk to uh, Gary Goldman more. His new book is Misfit, Growing Up Awkward in the 1980s. This is Livewire. Stay with us. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. 
Yeah, if you are not yet a member of LiveWire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at LiveWire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland, Oregon. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are so excited to have Gary Goldman here. His book is Misfit, Growing Up Awkward uh, in the 80s. Now, when I read the title of the book, I had a hard time squaring it with sort of the way I think about you because you're yeah. a very athletic person. Sure. Um, you're a tall guy. It didn't seem like you would have been a misfit, except then I thought, he's a comedian. Right. Yeah. Something must have happened. Yeah, comedians generally don't fit in, and then we find this group of people who, who get us, who watched SCTV and Chris Elliott's Get a Life, and, oh. and, and uh, right? Handsome Boy and Modeling Handsome School. Handsome Boy Modeling I was a, a 1993 graduate of, of Handsome Boy oh, really? Modeling School, yes. Uh, I, <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> and, yeah. and so... 
we find these people and we're like, where were they? And, and theater kids get it in, in high school and, and kids who are into fixing cars get it in ninth grade when they go to the vocational school. But, but people who didn't fit in and sat in the back of the class or even I noticed I was always drawn to the football kids who would crack wise and mm. be pushed around by the, the, within every group, there's always somebody pushing you around. They know they need to practice. They're bullying. So there, there are the younger kids or smaller kids of the football team, and, and we would make fun of them. And it, and it just, it was, it was a very healthy outlet for our, for our creativity and our resentment. And it was also self-medicating in that it, I, mm. I, I found the, the dopamine or serotonin associated with laughing or getting a laugh was, was, it, was, it was a lifesaver. I, I felt a little let down when I read about your initial Robin Leach impression that you would do because oh. you mentioned it's the easiest impression yes. to do. I was very proud of my Robin Leach impression <laughs> at about the same time. It turns yeah. out aspiring funny kids all oh, over yeah, America yeah. were making parodies of yes. Lifestyle yes. and thinking we were reinventing oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. comedy totally. wheel. Yeah, I made this audio tape and it was, I think it was Lifestyles of the, the Broke and hopeless. and hopeless. And I was just pointing out all these things, how we had this bar of soap that was like six slivers <laughs> melded together. Yeah. And But even to this day, I can afford plenty of bar soap and yet there's still part of me that's like no this is another six lathers yeah. and the and the the deodorant will pop up the top and I'm like no I'll use it as a loofah it's a disc it's 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 and my my wife will say when are you going to throw that out when I'm bleeding I will throw it out it is still useful what are we made of we're made of money in reading the parts of the book where you're talking about your journey in 2017, it felt like a maybe very small turning point for you was when you finally started to tell the people who were asking you how you're doing yes. that you weren't doing okay. Yes. That was a huge turning point. I, f I forget who... Oh, it was Mr. Rogers. If it's, if it's uh, mentionable, it's manageable. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, I think... It was it was a big turning point in in that once I started to talk about it, it, it felt less uh, I was less ashamed about it and people understood and it and it allowed me especially when I started talking it about it on stage it allowed me to connect with my audience at a at a level that I that I I had connected in terms of we shared a sense of humor but I had never connected in terms of we share a mood disorder or or an understanding of what it feels like to be either lonely or hopeless or or just anxious and 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 that was really beautiful I mean that that special came out four years ago and I, and I get I'm not exaggerating messages every single day from wow. people saying that they watch it or re-watch it to make them feel less stressed or they'll fall asleep listening to the album and it, and it just makes me so happy because I felt an obligation to share mm. this story because there was a time when I when I thought well this is just me for the rest of my life I'm going to be in the in the fetal position and and if it, if it weren't for the devotion of my now wife at the time I remember thinking would you just leave me because I'm bringing you down and and she just I could what I couldn't understand was that she, she really loved me. I mean, it, it just, but I felt so unlovable. It, it was something. I, if I remember right, in the book, I think you use a term talking about your depression, which is that it's been in remission for six yes. years. Yeah. And I thought that was really important. I oh, don't think okay. I've heard it described that way. Oh, that's but interesting. But it really reframed my thought about what depression is. Yeah, I, I think that was very important for me to understand, and, and for a long time I didn't, that this is an illness, and and you shouldn't be hard on yourself for having this this 
illness and you shouldn't be ashamed of it and it's the same thing as a broken arm or a torn rotator cuff, you'll, you'll treat it and in the meantime, you should feel that this is just something that you're, that you're living with and also there's the idea, when I say remission, it's something that I still have to work mm -hmm. to fight every, every day. I have to do my exercise and see my therapist and take my medicine and, and, and be with people and accept invitations to things and not isolate. So it's, it's really just, it reminds me of, of how much I have to lose if I, if I don't maintain. And, and your doctors have told you that with this amount that you've been in remission, it's unlikely that you yes. would have another, yes. another that, episode that, on yeah, the scale. That, yeah, that in terms of, of probability that, a, that a, a remission this durable is, is unlikely to, to return me to my former fetal position. Do you feel regret around calling yourself the Incredible Gulp? Because <laughs> that is, I think, kind of a boss nickname. Were you using that in, in basketball? When you I, I used it from the time there, there was an Incredible Hulk series when I was a child. It was for, now we're just used to the Marvel Universe being on everything all the time. But then it was just Friday nights yeah. on CBS, and I watched it religiously. You want to talk about a show that would give you Ajita, yeah. just the sad music of yes. Bruce Banner walking yes. out of another town yes. where he'd hulked out? Yes. I mean, yes. that could and, give anyone depression. And knowing that he was going to have to buy new khakis and, a, and, a, and, a, and an Oxford shirt. And the, the thing I remember saying to my, to my mom, because she would watch it with me on Friday nights, I would say, why is there only one journalist interested in covering this? <laughs> it, it seems like this is a no-brainer in terms of the Inquirer or the, the I, I forget what that, that British version the of the Inquirer. Yeah the, yeah, the mirror or something like that. A, a, a green man who destroys towns and right. then disappears. It, it's surprising. <laughs> um, as somebody who's been through the, the depression and anxiety that you have been through, I'm curious for people who know someone who's experiencing it, what was helpful in how people related to you and what was not helpful? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I think the most helpful thing, and I had a, I had a friend and she just said, let's go for a walk. Mm -hmm. And it was, man, it was like the highlight of my, my week. And that, and that just, and my, my psychiatrist says this, that he will sometimes call his patient from outside their apartment and say, today's session is going to be outside and we're going to go for a walk. Because that, that's the one thing I will say, if you have somebody who's, who's depressed or anxious, take them for a, a walk. It's, it's, it's not a cure-all and, and it doesn't overnight, but it is a small step and it can, it can distract you and also get your, your endorphins going and some exercise. And the, the other thing I would, I would say is that sometimes people will say, but you have so much going for you and you should be so, so grateful for what you have. And it just, it's not going to sink in because you think either I have this and I don't deserve it, or I have it and it's fleeting and I'm going to lose it because I'm so worthless. So that doesn't really help. But also one of the best things that a, a neighbor of mine said, and I talked about in the book, he, he calls me Louie because that's what I went by when I was a kid, my middle name. He said, he said, oh, Louie, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, kid. And, and I, I just, that was enough to make me feel like what a, what a simple but very kind thing to say. He didn't, he didn't say, well, have you tried running for miles or, or have you, have you, 
tried any of these these things. He just said, "I'm so sorry." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have an herb, or yeah, let's go. But but just things like let's go for coffee, or let's just watch a, a basketball game. Those are great things that that at the very least get you away from your ruminations and and the the isolation and loneliness that that accompanies so much of our of our depression. Yeah. Well, it's always been a dream for me to have you on our show. So really? I'm so glad My that word. this journey has I, brought you here, Gary Goldman. I have Gary been in, just in awe of your work, both of you. So mazel tov. Thank and, you. And I'm so happy thank for you. you. Gary Goldman, uh, everyone. Thank you the so book much, is everybody. Thank you. That was Gary Goldman, recorded live at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. His memoir, Misfit. Growing Up Awkward in the 80s is available now. Hey, special thanks this week to Tan Tan of Portland, Oregon, and Michelle Ulick Rosenthal of Seattle, Washington. Michelle and Tan are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting our program with a donation each month, and we are very thankful for that support because it's how we can keep doing Livewire. So big shout out to Tan and Michelle for supporting the program. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we ask our listeners a question. This week we asked, tell us about a meaningful thing that someone did to cheer you up when you were having a hard time. Elena has been gathering up those responses. What are you seeing? Oh, these are all great. They're all great. I feel like I'm going to have a better day having read them. Here's one from Francis. Uh, Francis says, my kiddo fancies themselves a really great masseuse, and they're not bad, actually, (laughs) and anytime I have tension or stress, they'll run into their room and they'll draw up a gift certificate for a one-minute massage, which I cash in immediately. (laughs) My mom has so many of those jars of various things that I was promising to do that I wrote down on little pieces of paper. That also reminds me, you know, I'm one of seven kids, and my dad very hard worker in his life. He would come home from the sign shop and he would sit on the couch and my sisters would put barrettes in his hair. (laughs) They would be practicing their like, you know, updos and stuff. And he would just fall asleep with like 35 little like poodle (laughs) plastic barrettes clipped in because it was like a head massage for him. That is very cute. Very, very (laughs) cute. Are any of your sisters beauticians now? No. It looked very bad, by the way. They were not talented at it, but it was a very relaxing process for my dad, Walt Burbank. So, all right. Something else nice that someone did for one of our listeners. Oh, I love this one from Matt. When my wife and I had a newborn baby, my best friend snuck into the house while we were napping and did our laundry at our dishes. And we came downstairs and were delightfully confused. (laughs) That is how you do it. Because, you know, like you can just be like, can I do anything for you? Let me know if you need Mm -hmm. anything. And then nobody ever says it. You just show up with like stuff to put in the fridge or with your Swiffer, you know. (laughs) And P.S. If you don't have a newborn baby, that never happens. Like, I've never gone downstairs and found my house miraculously clean. <laughs> it's like best burgling ever. Yeah. Like, I love your, you're upstairs, you're coming out of a daze because you're getting no sleep with the new baby, and you hear someone rustling around downstairs, and you're like, oh my goodness, what is happening? And you go downstairs to find someone just actually doing your dishes for you. That's like the best outcome to that story. That's a home invasion I can get behind. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one more nice thing that somebody did for one of our listeners. Okay, how about this one from Amber, who was working as a waiter on a packed day, 
And Amber says, I am stressing and it shows in my face. But there is this couple who is sitting quietly waiting for their food and they stopped Amber and gave her an early tip and said, here, I hope this cheers you up. Ugh. That is a really, really nice thing to do. I've never thought of that. Like I'm tipping at the end, you know, but maybe, you know, tipping in the middle, boy, that probably brightens that person's day and who knows you know you might get some extra special service it's very good fellas to tip at the beginning like the welcome shake has like a 20 dollars bill right. rolled up into it that's pretty right pretty cool and when they're bringing out the cheesecake for dessert they're gonna like you know get the like extra large slice for you or something like i mean let's be honest don't it's not a i'm not trying to be cynical i'm not saying you would tip early to get the largest piece of cheesecake but i'm just saying it wouldn't be the worst outcome yeah never uh, the worst outcome to get the best piece of cheesecake all right. Thanks to everyone who wrote in with a response to our listener question. We've got another one for next week's show, which we will reveal a little later. In the meantime, let's welcome our next guest over to the program. He is the current Poet Laureate of Oregon. He's also a two-time individual champion of the National Poetry Slam, and he is a winner of the International World Cup Poetry Slam, so both nationally and internationally really dominating in the poetry slam space. He's also the author of many books of poetry, including his latest, The Tigers, They Let Me, and he's a frequent guest right here on Livewire. Anise Mosgani joined us on stage at the Holt Center in Eugene, Oregon. Take a listen. Hi there, Anise. Hi, how are y'all doing? Great. Really good to see you. Good to see you too. Um, The last time I saw you, if I remember right, it was at the Oregon Book Awards, which I, I was emceeing, and you were uh, scheduled to give an award out. That is correct. And about maybe 10 minutes before it was time for you to give the award, they found me backstage and they said, uh, Anise may not make it. There's a poetry emergency somewhere, and he's dealing with it. <laughs> at least that is my memory of events. It's, it's completely spot on. Like, do, how, how does it work being the poet lord? Do they like parachute you into like hot spots that need poetry yeah. it's poetry emergencies left and right in this day and yeah. age you know i want to mention you did make it i did make you, it you got in like 15 seconds before you walked on stage and gave a very nice presentation it's because i'm a professional you know <laughs> this isn't my second term for no reason you know is that I, that's another thing is that typical to have two terms um it, it's it's a it's written into i don't know the bylaws or whatever it <laughs> you're not might solely be trying to seize power of the laureate mm. situation mm. in Oregon, are you? Mm. Like, first you take over the courts. So much power, so much riches. <laughs> laureate for life. Um, the, uh, yeah, it's written in there just to basically be able to have the possibility, mm-hmm. should it be something that's wanted, should it be something that's needed. So it just sort of depends on, you know, kind of what, what the gov wants. <laughs> I also, I think you're so well-suited to this job because first, well, I'm you. such a fan of your writing, but also I feel like the way that you activate poetry in your life and in the lives of people in Oregon, there's just so many creative ways that you are bringing it to people and creating moments of poetry in real life. This is not that. something that's happening in a, in a room somewhere or in a university setting yeah. or whatever. Like, I think, is that something that you have very much in your mind as the Poet Laureate? I, I think so. I mean, definitely my trek and journey to to this juncture in my craft, my profession, my life, what, whatever, has been spent very much exploring like what what are the ways in which poems exist and what are the ways in which that we are told that they don't exist and you know I feel that way about pretty much all avenues of art um, but I think specifically over the course of of my term 
I was thinking a lot more about that. Uh, like I remember some years ago listening to the poet Naomi Shihab Nye on the uh, podcast on being. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, Krista Tippett, the host, had, had mentioned to her was uh, Naomi referencing the idea that we think in poems mm-hmm. and that we are living inside of poems. And I loved thinking about well, what does that mean with regards to how many poems are existing around us? How many poems are we participating in? And that like the job of us isn't even necessarily to make a poem out of this poem. Like the poem exists whether it has language or not delivered to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, the trees exist whether we climb them. The trees exist whether we fell them, whether we dismiss them. Um, and so I think particularly within my time as laureate, the things that I've been interested in is what are the ways in which that um, I might put that idea or that seed into somebody's thought, that like they are allowed to w- bear witness to a poem, even if they don't consider themselves a poet, even if they don't write a poem from that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, could you read us something from the Tigers? They let me, in fact, maybe the... Um, title track. I don't know if that's how we refer to poems, but that's, that's what I'm that's calling it. That's how we it. refer to them tonight, at least. <laughs> <laughs> it's called The Tigers, They Let Me. The tigers, they let me touch them. They were so soft. Even when out the front door, they left with their softness. Even when they left with my arm. Even when seemingly too, like a puppy holding but a plush whale squeaking in their mouth. It's not that it didn't hurt, but there was no blood. And another arm arrived from out of my body like a daffodil out of the winter. And now, well, I have one arm and at the same time, I have two arms. And at the same time, I have many arms. All the arms that have been taken or lost or given freely away, I have them too still somewhere under this earth of me, and they, being unseen, being but a memory, are able to touch what isn't there, but they're still the same, able to lift what is invisible, and there are a lot of tigers in the world, to be touched from afar, their softness. A lot of tigers, whether flush with rich fur or belly waxing and backs bowed, meeting in the middle, broken-toothed and belly concave as a waning moon, there are lots of tigers and many flowers of petals, jugs of burnt clay, clouds moving over pastures and songs, made rich by the throats that love them into loudness, made rich from the earth up to the elbows, planted and pulled into the third month's end, softening. It takes a lot of arms, a lot of arms to touch us all. I am a tiger too. Anis Mojgani, reading from the tigers. They let me... Um, another thing that uh, came up in this book a couple of places uh, were bathtubs. I don't know if you're a big bath taker. I'm really not, actually. There's a lot of bathtub content. <laughs> Speaking of which, could we but, actually... But I love, like, the, like, the, like uh, I've had, I guess, like, people in my life that I've loved where baths were, like, big parts of their life. Yeah, and, okay. and as a child, definitely the bathtub was a big part of my life. And there's just something about the bathtub that is, like... I don't know. It's it's like a sexy object. Yeah. In this it's book it is. A very functional object. Like right. it, it just like spans yes. realities, you know? Yeah. 
And now they make those little like trays that you can put over it and put like a glass of wine on it and like oh Anissa's book. You never need to get out of the bathtub oh, potentially like for the rest of your life. For like Speaking of which, could we actually hear another poem? And this one does have a bathtub there reference a bathtub. in it. I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> um, this uh, is, it went May, June, 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 October. That is correct. All right. Her in the tub calling, I'm here. Upon me coming into the house and through the bathroom door, her smile coming out of the steam, the freckles across her cheeks and shoulders rising out of the milky bath like pebbles becoming an archipelago in the hot air. I kiss her shorelines, her lips I love so much, our smiles becoming one, my face wet from hers up to my wrists, my hands in the water, her elbows, ourselves deepening in the wet together. While outside the bathroom's wrinkled window, the figs on the tree in the yard were not yet then in bloom. When they grew on the smaller tree up front, like a bruise becoming a flower, but still in the before of the blossom, purple and heavy with seed, blanketed by sweet, she brought me some. From the bowl she filled with them, they were better than knowing a poem by heart. They were a poem, known by the heart. She picked more and we sliced them together into small bits, laid them out on the layers of pans, and she dried them out overnight. They were so soft, so delicious, nothing cold about them, but they were not plums, but a different poem from a different tree in her yard. This still was in summer, perhaps and probably after or before a day we swam, jumping off the hot stones like we were somewhere in the Mediterranean and not Milwaukee, Oregon, leaping into the green wide place of the river where it past the big houses, curves around Elk Rock and head south into the sun, where we would kiss upon rising from under the water, our faces wet, climb out of the waves made from the boats passing to sit and marvel at the beauteous height of the stone wall that rises on the other side of the river. Like we were swimming outside a palace, escaping its shadow for the kingdom of our own sunlight, which let the day dry our skin warm and then jump in again. What a marvelous time June is. The month of both our births. A month of both our hurt hearts birthing themselves again, especially when the month stretches itself through the months to follow, as if again birthing itself again, side by side, in the splash, rising like freckles out of the water, waving, becoming archipelagos, islands that curve towards and under the water, connecting into one another. Thank you. That is Anise Moshkani right here on Livewire from his latest book, The Tigers, They Let Me. Uh, you were sort of describing it a little bit earlier, but I, I'm wondering, like, uh, sometimes if I'm out doing something with my girlfriend and she sees me taking a weird picture of something, she goes, you're putting that in Instagram, aren't you? Like, you're making an Instagram post. You're making a tweet right now. What are you doing? Do the people you're with, whether it's friends, loved ones, know if you're composing mm -hmm. a poem in your mind like this you're doing a poem right now aren't you you're starting to do a poem yeah uh, <laughs> like i don't know if it's like an actual thing it's definitely sort of like uh will surface as a joke or a ribbing of some sort you know like not necessarily like why don't you write a poem about it but you know <laughs> stop the poeming same yourself sentiment, you know basically right. more or less yeah. yeah do you have a sense in a moment like the the one that you described there that this is something that may come back in your work, or is it only like upon reflection? 
Oh, that's a hard question. You know, I think it depends. There's definitely moments where a poem starts taking shape inside of the moment. And I don't know if it's like the moment speaking or the poet inside of my head trying to like observe and make something. And and when it is feels like that, there's definitely, I think, a larger part of me that's trying to push them away hmm. and just simply wants me to like be living my life. And then there's the other times where uh, there's just sort of something that's happening and um, it if it wants to, bec- if, if, if I want it to become a poem at some point, um, it behooves me to, to speak to it right then and there. Um, you know, I think particularly with, with this book that there's a number of poems where I sort of sat and reflected on, on things that I wanted to pull forth and talk about and write about. Like I write a lot of poems, at least previously, and st- still do, I write a lot of poems that um, really love seeing where the uh, the lives that we lead um, end up becoming kind of different stories while still being connected to the truth of whatever occurred. And with these, I really wanted to, 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 to kind of step away a little bit from some of the magical realism that I really love infusing into my work and seeing what happens if I'm just re-recording purely my experiences and then seeing what happens. So that happened a lot with this book. Well, I would just ask that you not push the poetry too far away because I really love your writing and I love oh, your thank books. Thank you, Luke. Thank you so much. Anis Mojgani, everyone, Poet Laureate of Oregon. Thanks, the y'all. Tigers, they let me. Good to see you. Thanks for coming on Livewire. That was the fabulous Anis Mojgani right here on Livewire. His latest book, The Tigers, They Let Me, is available now. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We have to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, we are going to hear a song from singer-songwriter Olive Klug. You may have heard Olive on TikTok. They're famous over there. So stick around to hear it on Livewire in a moment. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, before we get to our musical guest this week, a little preview of what we are bringing you for next week's show. We're going to be talking to the one and only Cheryl Strayed, the person behind Tiny Beautiful Things. It's a book that is having its 10th anniversary. It's also now a TV series starring Katherine Hahn. Uh, we're going to talk to Cheryl about what it's like being portrayed by an American treasure. And this is the second time that's happened because Reese Witherspoon also played Cheryl, of course, in the movie Wild. And we're going to talk to writer Joseph Earl Thomas about his memoir, Sink, which the New York Times calls an extraordinary memoir of a black American boyhood. We're also going to get some music from Stephanie Ann Johnson. So do not miss that episode of Livewire.
This is Livewire. Our musical guest this week has a sound that's reminiscent of the golden age of American folk music, but with a uniquely modern lyrical sensibility. How modern? Well, they've got millions of views on TikTok, many of them from me. Their debut album, Don't You Dare Make Me Jaded, is one of my favorite (laughs) names for an album I've heard in a long time. This is Olive Klug, who joined us on stage at the Holt Center in Eugene, Oregon. Check it out. Um, Olive, welcome uh, to Livewire. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I've been really, really getting into your music of late, and I was curious. You grew up mostly in Portland. What, what, were, what were you listening to? What were your parents playing? Kind of what was your musical life like as a kid? Well, my dad was like really indoctrinated me, like not even just like played music for me. He like in the car, I remember he would like play classic rock and classic folk music and he would quiz me on it and he would be like, (laughs) I'll give you a dollar if you tell me what band this is and what album it's from. And then I would be like, oh, that's that's Led Zeppelin. It's from Led Zeppelin 2 or like something like that. But, you know, I feel like I got a very good uh, 70s music education from my dad and the thing the most important thing I took from that for myself was my love of Joni Mitchell I've been like Mm. obsessed with Joni Mitchell since I was um you know like three years old and when I was like seven I would walk around the house singing both sides now and people were Mm. like you don't know life from both sides now you're seven (laughs) but um yeah I think that I Really am thankful for that music education. But when I was in high school, I was in high school in the uh, early 2010s. And that was kind of like all of that like indie rock was really popular. I was really into the shins. I was really mm-hmm. into Dr. Dog and like the Arctic oh. Monkeys. And I feel like indie rock needs to make a comeback, but I'm not going to do it. You're not the, you're not the one for it? <laughs> no. um, uh, I'm curious uh, because a lot of your music has been really well received, particularly on social media. Do you have any thought about when you're writing a song, does any part of your brain think, will this be something that people like on TikTok and maybe a shorter version or like, you know, via these other, what what would seem like kind of newish ways for people to experience music? Does that factor into your creation of music? Unfortunately, it does. I think that's <laughs> been really a difficult um, thing for me. And I think for my generation of songwriters, is to think about, you know, things that are really catchy and kitschy and about something very specific tend to do well on TikTok Mm. and things that are maybe, um, you know, have a slower build or maybe don't have as clear of a, you know, overt meaning or don't necessarily do quite as well. And so sometimes I'll write a song that I really love, but I'm like, oh, well, I know this isn't going to do well on TikTok. And that's, it's it's a difficult thing. It's definitely... um, been a struggle for me in my creative process recently, but I'm kind of choosing to not care about that response quite as much and just use it as a tool. Um, I love the title of this album, Don't You Dare Make Me Jaded. Where did that come from? Who are you telling that to? Um, Well, (laughs) uh, it's actually a quote from a song that I wrote called Casting Spells, and that song is just about taking the magic of childhood into your adult life and taking kind of your belief that people are good and your belief that the world is a beautiful place into adulthood and not letting kind of the difficulties of our current lived experience make you jaded and to keep your hope alive. And even though that's really hard, that's what I'm trying my best to do. So, well, yes. (laughs) 
What uh, song are we going to hear at the Holt Center in Eugene, Oregon? We are going to hear Raining in June. All right. Mm. This is Olive Klug here on Livewire. Song is specifically about growing up in Portland and hating when I got out of school and it was still raining for like a full month. right here on Livewire. That was Olive Klug. Their debut album, Don't You Dare Make Me Jaded, is out and available now. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Livewire. A very huge thanks to our guests, Gary Goldman, Anis Mojgani, and Olive Klug. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. And our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. 
Molly Pettit is our technical director, and our house sound is by Daniel Blake. Trey Hester is our assistant editor. Our marketing and production manager is Karen Pan. Rosa Garcia is our operations associate. Jackie Ibarra is our production fellow, and Aunt Diaz is our intern. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, Al Alves, and A Walker Spring, who also composes our music. This episode was mixed by Molly Pettit and Trey Hester. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Ton Tan of Portland, Oregon, and Michelle Ulick Rosenthal of Seattle, Washington. For more information about the show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.